I just want to preface this episode by saying that I am a little out of my element here, pun intended. This story is going to be a little heavy on the science, and I intended for it to be a mini, but I think it's actually going to be the longest episode yet because there's so much to cover, and it's one where you just don't want to leave anything out. So bear with me. I am an art, words, idea person, so I'm going to get some science wrong here probably, but I did my best with the research. Um, Send me an email if I say something wrong and I'll put corrections in my next episode, happily. So here goes. Oh, and this is Kentucky History and Haunts, and I'm Jesse Bartholomew. So today I'm going to be talking about Maxi Flats Waste which was a nuclear waste disposal facility located in Hillsborough, Kentucky. Rural, kind of northeastern area. So, starting in 1972, people around the facility reported that hot liquid material was being disposed of over the Fleming County hillside. As soon as this news started circulating, more alarming facts were revealed. Some were saying, like contaminated watches and tools and other items that were supposed to have been buried were actually sold or being given away. So they were just out there circulating. And then local dairy farmers were like, oh, I wonder if this is also why my cattle are super sick and like grinding their teeth and experiencing skin depigmentation. So after investigation, press reported the waste being dumped over the hillside was none other than plutonium-239, and it was being spilled recklessly and draining out of restricted areas. So not good at all. Now two years after the rumors started circulating about all this, some of the people in Fleming County put together the Maxi Flats Radiation Protection Association, or MFRPA. And they started by trying to get the attention of their politicians. So they sat a jug of water from Maxi Flats on Governor Julian Carroll's desk, telling him, quote, this is what people are drinking down there. They had also sent a sample of the water to a lab in Minnesota. And when they got the results of the lab, or when they got the results, the lab asked, quote, where samples with such astronomical readings were taken? After testifying in front of the state's Special Advisory Committee on Nuclear Issues, the governor promised he would close the nuclear waste site, quote, at the first evidence that nuclear waste could not be contained, which it sounded like they had already proved with the water sample, but okay. I guess they finally got the damning evidence they needed in August of 1977, so a good five years after the initial complaints. State monitoring reports proved that, quote, low-level radioactive waste was migrating from buried trenches. Of course, this was also on the radar of the EPA and Kentucky Human Resources Department, who found plutonium isotopes more than 200 feet from the unused trenches, with seepage occurring more rapidly than those in charge had anticipated. Furthermore, the techniques used by the facility for disposal were found to be downright careless, allowing rainwater to fall in the trenches, which led to contaminated groundwater and surface water runoff to flow into the Rocklick tributaries, which we'll talk about more in a minute. In December of that same year, after investigators from numerous other agencies 
got involved as well, they finally had all the information they needed to close the site for good. But the closing of the facility brought with it a whole other set of issues. At this point, state officials openly admitted that choosing that site in the first place in 1962 had been a bad decision. But hindsight's 2020, and at the time, its, quote, diverse geology and above-average annual precipitation had seemed like good reasons to choose the site. It was also a lucrative decision at the time. Bringing the nuclear industry to Kentucky was financially beneficial, so the concern of how to manage the waste properly was perhaps put on the back burner a little bit. Politicians really just wanted to be players in the nuclear energy industry. The Kentucky General Assembly had to pass a bunch of bills to permit a nuclear burial site in Kentucky in 1962. And then they had to choose a site, so they ruled out any potential sites in western Kentucky due to the possibility of earthquakes, and they settled on northeastern Kentucky because it was the logical answer, the water-resistant high shale deposit in the soil would be good. So they did not foresee the issue with the shale developing cracks and fissures over time. They decided on a 252-acre site, which sat across a flat-topped ridge nearly 400 feet above the Rocklick Valley. They signed a 25-year lease with the Nuclear Engineering Company for Operation Maxi Flats. Now, I just can't fathom living somewhere and finding out they were about to build a big old nuclear waste facility right above my house, because although it was not a highly residentially developed area, There were about 300 residents within a five-mile radius of the plant, and the kicker here was that their water supply for more than 120 underground wells were all around the site where the waste facility would be. So I would be a little concerned, to say the least, but what's the health of 300 people when you can become a player in the up-and-coming nuclear energy industry? That was sarcasm, if you couldn't feel it. Now... To make matters worse, the nuclear engineering company actually disclosed in its initial reporting that there were major issues with this being the chosen site, specifically the very real possibility that heavy rainfall would get into those buried trenches. But it was a done deal, and lots of lovely toxic waste was getting buried at the site as soon as May of 1963. So this whole process of having the idea to bring nuclear energy to Kentucky, choosing the site, making it operational, it seemed like it was all done in a very short amount of time with a very do-it-first, ask-questions-later type of attitude, which you can't be doing when you're making decisions about nuclear waste. So here's where the waste was coming from. Over 99% of the waste containing cancer-causing radionuclides was brought from research labs, military ships, electric utilities, colleges, universities, government and healthcare centers, manufacturing companies, and nuclear power plants across the United States. 85% of the radioactive waste buried in the trenches at the site had low-level contamination, 
The other 15 or so percent was high-level waste, including that little gem I mentioned earlier, plutonium, which turns out is radiologically toxic for just a short, sweet 25,000 years. So here's what they did. They filled 51 trenches that were 650 feet long with radioactive waste. What seems bananas to me is they apparently buried this waste in wooden crates, cardboard boxes, paper bags, or metal drums. Now, I don't know a lot about radioactive waste, but it kind of seems to me like why bother with the paper bags and the cardboard? Um, so write me an email and let me know because that seems really silly to me. Um, but then the book that I was reading went on to say that some of it was just buried completely uncontained with nothing in between the waste and the soil. So each disposal trench would then be capped with a nice little layer of soil, which, as I think I mentioned, ended up being a bit of a problem. Because this top layer of soil would eventually start to sag into the trench and it would collect rainwater and eventually deposit those pesky radionuclides into the surrounding soil. But yeah, it took them until 1972 to really ring the alarm. So state monitors realized that, quote, plutonium was leaching from trenches through shale fissures and migrating through surface water runoff into the Licking River. I had to look up the Licking River to find out what this meant, and yikes, because it's not a little tiny stream of a river. It's a 303-mile tributary of the Ohio River. Now, according to Wikipedia, the most accurate and reliable source on the planet, the river and its tributaries drain much of the region of northeastern Kentucky between the watersheds of the Kentucky River to the west and the Big Sandy River to the east. So this is a problem, and this raised the eyebrows of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Agency and the U.S. Geological Survey. Welcome to the party, y'all. By 1976, the public was so outraged and begging for an excise tax on any further nuclear waste to be buried in the state. Now, the nuclear engineering company that leased the site for 25 years was basically at war with the public. And they were like, listen, the EPA's report wasn't totally conclusive about radioactive seepage, and it failed to indicate that the measured radiation was above permissible levels. But residents, and some officials were like, okay, sure. But we're really concerned about the lack of science on long-term implications of radioactive contamination, not just what's going on right now. So an article from the Courier-Journal in 2015, written by James Brugers, referred to this as, quote, legacy pollution. Sure, everything might be hunky-dory now, but what is this going to look like for us in another 10, 20, 50 years? It sounded to me like the EPA report they were referencing was only based on what was happening right at the moment with no projections for the future. Maybe. That is my non-expert speculation. Now, in case you're wondering how our nuclear waste facility in Hillsboro compared to other sites nationally, 
Nearly 5 million cubic feet of radioactive nonsense was buried at Maxi Flats, which happened to make it the largest commercial nuclear waste disposal facility in the entire country at the time. So they were not messing around. And remember how I said that state officials had high hopes of this facility making Kentucky a player in the nuclear energy industry? Yeah, it didn't. We never developed a single nuclear research facility. So what happened after they decided to shut it down? From 1978 to about 1990, efforts were made to kind of clean up the possible damage that was already done. And one method they attempted was injecting the ground with grout-like materials into the soil to create an impenetrable barrier. This turned out to be a pretty bad idea when they found out that this injection procedure they were doing was producing hazardous tritium. Now, I looked up tritium out of curiosity, and here's the deal on that. When you search how dangerous is tritium on the internet, it says tritium does not have chemically toxic effects, and its potential to be hazardous to human health is solely because it it emits ionizing radiation. This radiation exposure may very slightly increase the probability that a person will develop cancer during his or her lifetime. So they cut that out in 1986, and I guess at this point the EPA stepped in and was like, you fucking idiots don't know what you're doing. So they added Maxi Flats to their national priorities list, which made it eligible for Superfund maintenance and stabilization. They got 286,000 gallons of leaching trenches, which according to the internet are basically big septic systems. So got those got impenetrable liners installed to prevent additional rainwater infiltration. And when all was said and done here, over 900,000 gallons of contaminated trench water was removed. That group of uh, residents, the MFRPA, they disbanded in 1977. And some of the members went on to fight for technical assistance grants from the EPA so that the public could remain in the loop on decision-making at the local level regarding that Superfund cleanup project that they now had in place. Now, some good did come from this very public battle between the residents and the disposal facility. Three articles of legislation were created in Kentucky to define standards for future nuclear waste disposal, and the EPA also put on notice several entities that were creating this type of waste in the mid-1980s to warn them of consequences of potential liability. And then, by 1995, quote, the U.S. Department of Justice and EPA had entered into a consent decree with 400 private and government parties to stabilize and minimize further pollution from maxi flats for a cost of an estimated $60 million. Further efforts to remedy the issues at Maxi Flats included the installation of a geomembrane liner and the pumping of contaminated water out of the storage trenches, solidified with concrete and buried on site. 
They also installed automated monitoring equipment, which could sample surface water at multiple locations several times a day for testing. And they also added a buffer zone. Um, two reports, one said 550 acres, the more recent one said 725, to separate it from surrounding residential areas and farms. Here's your big fun fact. You're going to love it. Quote, remediation cost Kentucky taxpayers close to a million dollars annually. Now, this number could have gone down in more recent years, but it's still frustrating. Um, this whole thing is, was just a big blunder. Now, Kentucky has created an extended maintenance plan for the site, and originally it was supposed to be restricted for a minimum of 200 years. Um, but in other reports, I see 100. So I'll give you some more recent updates. According to the Kentucky Energy and Environment Cabinet, only two of the six low-level radioactive waste disposal facilities in the nation are still operational. Um, now, this site and the EPA's website says that the institutional control period will be 100 years, not 200, so that is interesting. And the EPA also said that the final landfill cap was constructed in 2014, and so that control period is in progress right now. So it'll be interesting to see if in the future they'll actually do something with that land there. Um, according to the Courier-Journal article I mentioned earlier, that cap that they built cost somewhere around $35 million to build, um, making it the largest state-funded environmental cleanup ever. The EPA's website also says point blank, quote, contamination does not threaten people living and working near the site. Residents and businesses now use the public water system for drinking purposes as an additional layer of protection. And then another excerpt from the EPA, uh, they have a section that says, quote, what is the current site status? The most recent five-year review was published by EPA HQs in 2017. The remedy at MFDS is protective of human health and the environment in the short term because remedial activities completed to date have adequately addressed all exposure pathways that could result in unacceptable risks at MFDS. So the construction of the site's final cap is complete and... Um, Groundwater and surface water monitoring are ongoing, but according to them, everything is just peachy. So, there's so many awesome Courier Journal articles over the years on this topic. So, if you want to learn more, I would just search Maxi Flats plus Courier Journal and start browsing through them. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Kentucky History and Haunts. Now, I feel like I gave you a pretty good overview of this whole thing, but really there is so much to it and it's so interesting. So really, I encourage you to check out more on your own. Um, I did originally get the idea from the book It Happened in Kentucky by Mimi O'Malley, and then I found a great article um, on processhistory.org called Maxi Flats. The article was called Maxi Flats by Caroline Payton. Uh, that's a great article. 
and the article in the Courier Journal from 2015 by James Brugger's called Final Cap Construction Underway for Maxi Flats Nuclear Waste Dump. That was a great article as well. And in that one, it references some older articles on the same topic. So you can kind of just jump from one to the other. So that's where I got everything for this episode. Again, I definitely encourage you to find out more. And if I said anything stupid or made any little mistakes, send me an email so I can correct them, like I said, to kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com or send a message to the Instagram at kyhistoryhaunts and check out the Facebook page, Kentucky History and Haunts. Thanks so much, and I'll see you again soon.